So it's a hundred years ago today that at the 11th hour on the 11th day of the 11th month, the guns fell silent on the Western Front. And it's an important date, obviously, therefore, in world history. But why a hundred years on do we still want to remember all those who lost their lives in the great wars? Why do we? What, what drives our desire to keep remembering a hundred years on, and no doubt a hundred and one years on and a hundred and two years on, what happened that long ago? And I think there are three, perhaps three main things that we reasons that we want to remember. I think the first is about the horror of war. Because as long as we remember the horror of war, we should at least all try to avoid it in the future, shouldn't we? I think secondly, it's to give thanks for the sacrifice of all those people who did give their lives in order that we weren't ruled by tyranny or worse in defence of our freedom. And thirdly, I think we remember because it reminds us that we want to be people who work for peace in the future. In other words, to do everything we can, remembering back, giving thanks, looking forward to avoid a repetition of so much destruction, devastation, so many lives lost, so many families broken. But as I prepared this talk this morning, it struck me just how closely these three crucial aspects of remembrance mirror the main themes of this chapter, chapter 9 from Nehemiah. We're on a series looking right through the chapter of Nehemiah, the story of the exiles, the Israelite exiles returning to the promised land, rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem... And do you remember what Steve said last week when he preached? He said that the first half of the book of Nehemiah was all about physical restoration, rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem. God's people rebuilt the wall despite huge challenges. And the second half of the book of Nehemiah is all about the spiritual renewal of God's people as they listen to God's word and respond. So, who here this morning would like to experience spiritual renewal. (laughs) I'd like to, certainly. Whatever the cost. Okay, let's see. Let me just pray briefly before I continue. Lord, we thank you for this uh, wonderful book of Nehemiah that teaches us so much about what it means to be a disciple, to follow you. We just pray, Lord, that This morning, as we look at chapter 9 in more detail, that you would touch hearts and minds and speak to us through your word that we might be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, would you like to just grab a Bible and turn to page 492? The reason I've said that is that I know we had quite a long passage read out. Thank you, Sally, you read it very well. But we're going to be looking at an even broader passage Um, stretch of of, of that chapter. It's page 492. And and as it goes through, we're we're going to see what it took for that spiritual renewal. 
They've, they've, all, they've rebuilt the wall. The physical renew- restoration has happened. But now it's spiritual renewal. What makes up that spiritual renewal? Well, firstly, as they read the scriptures, they're reminded of how badly they have messed up in the past. Not so much the horrors of war, but the horrors of a hundred or hundreds of years of disobedience towards God. How have they messed up exactly? Well, if we look at verse 2 of chapter 9, and I want you to imagine all the people of Jerusalem gathered together in a big sort of town square, and it says in the second half of verse 2, they stood in their places and confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. In other words, they acknowledged how badly they had messed up in the past. And then halfway through verse 5, this incredible prayer begins, which goes on for almost two pages. And to begin with, the prayer simply acknowledges who God is. In verse 6 it says, You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens and all their starry host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that's in them. You give life to everything and the multitudes of heaven worship you. What an amazing description of our creator God. And then beginning with verse 7, the first verse of our reading, the prayer goes on to tell of the whole history of God's dealings with his people. And it gets very personal. The calling of Abraham, the journey to the promised land, verse 8, and then into slavery in Egypt, verse 9, followed by God's miraculous rescue of the Israelites out of slavery into freedom through the waters of the Red Sea, verses 10 and 11. And then the giving of the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, Verses 13 and 14. And God's provision of bread from heaven and water in the desert to relieve their hunger and thirst. And now we're up to the end of verse 15. It's all going well so far, but not for long. Verse 16. But they, our ancestors, became arrogant, refused to listen, failed to remember. Let's think about that on Remembrance Sunday. They failed to remember. Verse 18 tells of when they made an idol of a golden calf and worshipped that instead of God. And it gets worse. Verse 26, which refers to a time when they've settled down, fat and happy in the promised land. What do they do? They were disobedient, rebelled against God, turned their backs on the scriptures and killed God's prophets who had been sent to help them. It's a litany of disasters. When God had given them so much, how could they have rejected him so badly? And yet, and yet, that is us. We can be just as rebellious, just as disobedient as the Israelites were. When things are going well and we get arrogant and proud and we think, oh, I'm pretty good at this thing called life. I'm doing this rather well, aren't I? But when the wheels fall off, relationships break down, our financial situation takes a dive, we start blaming God. How could this happen to me? How could you let that happen? And in this amazing prayer, the Israelites remember and acknowledge how badly they have messed up in the past. That's the first thing. Secondly, they recognize and give thanks for God's amazing grace, despite their shortcomings. And if we go kind of back to the beginning of the chapter and then skim through it again, each time they mess up, God 
He does sometimes discipline them for a while, but he always forgives them and he always reaches back out to them with love and mercy. Verse 17, the prayer says, For you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And abounding in love. Therefore you did not desert them. Verse 19, because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the wilderness, but led them with a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. Verse 20, you gave your good spirit to instruct them. Verse 21, for 40 years you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Verse 22, God kept his promise and gave them the promised lands and they flourished. And even after they messed up again, verse 26, and got sent into exile, God heard their cries from heaven and delivered them from their enemies. And this acknowledgement of God's never-ending love and grace is summed up in verse 33, when the prayer says, in all that has happened to us, you, God, have remained righteous. You have acted faithfully while we acted wickedly. It's a complete abandonment to the grace of God. They know they deserved everything they ever, that ever happened to them. In fact, they deserved worse. They know that they can't call for justice because if they got justice, they wouldn't even be breathing. But they didn't get justice. They got grace. And so they acknowledge and give thanks for the grace God has extended to them and their ancestors. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I am inclined to demand justice. It's not fair. Why is that person who's being so horrible to me not getting their just desserts? I want justice. But there's a huge problem with that, isn't there? Because if we demand justice for others, then we're calling down justice on ourselves. Do not judge, said Jesus, or you will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. That's Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. There are only two alternatives, only two ways to live. Demanding justice or living in grace. Which do we want? If you demand justice for others, you must be prepared to receive justice yourself. And I don't know about you, but I don't think I want justice. I want grace. But here's the catch. If I'm to receive grace, then I must extend grace to everyone else. You can't have it both ways. A good friend of mine was struggling to repair a broken, damaged relationship he had with his daughter-in-law. And so he went to see her to listen to her grievances and apologize for the hurt he'd caused. And she recounted all of the things that he had said and done which had hurt her in the past. And then it was over to him. And he started well because he said sorry to her for the ways in which he'd hurt her. But then the devil got in. Because he started to tell her the things that she had said in the past that had hurt him and had hurt his wife. But of course, that's all she heard. You see, like many of us, he couldn't help demanding justice. He wanted to justify what he'd done when what was needed 
was grace. And so he blew it. And the relationship is still damaged. I pray to God that it will be healed, but it's still damaged. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, when someone slaps you on the right cheek, did he say slap them back? No, he didn't. He said, turn to them the other also. That's grace. In Romans 12, 14, Paul the Apostle said, when someone persecutes you, bless them. Don't curse them. That's grace. John Arnott, writing in his book on the importance of forgiveness, says that when we demand justice, we're actually stepping back out of grace into an old legal system that has the power to demand justice and payment for our sins as well. He says it's like giving the devil the keys to your house. And sometimes it can be even harder to be graceful to fellow Christians than it is to non-Christians because we feel they ought to know better. That's why some people who've sadly been hurt by the church in the past, well, it often runs so deep because we know that church should be full of grace, not full of judgment. We're simply not to judge, said Jesus. Do we feel like being graceful? No. Do we want to get even? Yes. But we are no followers of Jesus if that's the course we take. Remember, we follow a saviour who, whilst nailed to a cross, dying in physical and spiritual agony, carrying our sins in order that we didn't have to, cried out, not, God, smite them for what they've done, but, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. That's why many people reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because they cannot accept a God who loves that much. They become like the elder brother in the story of the prodigal son who refuses to join in the joy and the celebrations of his younger brother who's returned home having blown half the family's money on his own selfish pleasures but who receives forgiveness and restoration from his father instead of punishment and rejection. It's just too much grace. It's so unfair. It's like Jonah. God, how could you forgive the ghastly people of Nineveh? But guess what? That's how much God loves you too. Even you. Even me. After hearing the word of God in Nehemiah chapter 9, the Israelites acknowledge how much they deserved punishment and rejection, in other words, justice, but realize afresh the extraordinary grace that they have received from God who just keeps on forgiving them and restoring them time after time after time. And as we'll see in next week's reading, they commit to a new way of life. It changes how they live. Spiritual renewal begins with a powerful realisation of who we are in relation to who God is and what he's done for us, which moves us to deeper worship, deeper prayer, more thankful lives. And that changes us. So we remember how badly we've messed up in the past and perhaps how hard our hearts might still be in the present. But then, like the Israelites, we remember how much we've been forgiven, how much grace we've received from God. Romans 5.8 says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
So easy to say, such an incredible truth, but so hard to fully grasp. But when those two things have sunk deep into our hearts and minds, it changes how we live, how we respond to others, how we shine the light of Christ in the world around us. That's how we get to spiritual renewal. Some of us this morning, like those Israelites in the time of Nehemiah, may have realized by now that perhaps there are areas in our lives that we've effectively handed the keys of our souls over to Satan because our hearts are still hardened against someone whom we want justice for. And as a result, we can't get ourselves out of a a negative cycle of thoughts and feelings which threaten to steal our joy. Some of us this morning, like those Israelites, may still be wishing that so-and-so or such-and-such a person who hurt us and got away with it should get their just desserts, that life's not fair, that God, you should be doing something about it. Will we choose justice or will we choose grace? And some of us may be realizing, like those Israelites, that our first love, that wonderful relationship we once had with God, has perhaps faded because we've taken his grace for granted. Instead of remembering Jesus' death on the cross as the ultimate expression of God's love and mercy, it's become kind of head knowledge. We've forgotten the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. And if any of those things strike a chord with you, I want to encourage you to go up for prayer, but perhaps during the worship songs we're going to be singing in just a moment. So on this Remembrance Sunday as we remember the horror of war, as we give thanks for the sacrifice of those who gave their lives, and as we determine to live and pray for peace in the future, like those Israelites who renewed the wall of Jerusalem and then set about renewing their relationship with God, let's ask this morning, commit to spiritual renewal by remembering how great our need is of God's mercy, remembering how much God loves us by sending his son to die for us on the cross and determining to live lives of grace and extending grace to all whom we come into contact with. Amen.